Hello, and welcome to the DadCast. I'm your host, Chris Hale, and during each episode, I will read aloud a short story, poem, or academic, or scholarly article. Leon Battista Alberti, On Painting Dedication of the Italian text to Filippo Brunelleschi I used both to marvel and to regret that so many excellent and divine arts and sciences, which we now know from their works and from historical accounts, were possessed in great abundance by the talented men of antiquity, have now disappeared and are almost entirely lost. Painters, sculptors, architects, musicians, geometers, rhetoricians, augurs, and such like, distinguished and remarkable intellects, are very rarely to be found these days, and are of little merit. Consequently, I believe what I have heard many say that nature, mistress of all things, had grown old and weary, and was no longer producing intellects any more than giants on a vast and wonderful scale, such as she did in what one might call her youthful and more glorious days. But after I came back here to this most wonderful of beautiful of cities, from the long exile in which we Albertis have grown old, I recognize in many, above all, in you, Filippo, in our great friend, the sculptor Donatello, and in others, Nincio, Luca, and Masaccio, a genius for every laudable enterprise in no way inferior to any of the ancients who gained fame in these arts. I then realized that the ability to achieve the highest distinction in any meritorious activity lies in our own industry and diligence no less than in the favors of nature and of, of the times. I admit that for the ancients, who had many pre precedents to learn from and to imitate, it was less difficult to master those noble arts which for us today prove arduous. But it follows that our fame should be the greater if without perpetrators, preceptors and without any model to imitate, we discover arts and sciences hitherto unheard of and unseen. What man, however hard of heart or jealous, would not praise Filippo the architect when he sees here such an enormous construction towering above the skies, vast enough to cover the entire Tuscan population with its shadow, and done without the aid of beams or elaborate wooden supports? Surely a feat of engineering, if I am not mistaken, that people did not believe possible these days, and was probably equally unknown and unimaginable among the ancients. But I will speak elsewhere of your praises, and the talent of your friend Donatello, and of others who are dear to me for their virtues. I beg you to go on, as you are doing, finding means whereby your wonderful merit may obtain everlasting fame and renown. And if you should have some leisure, I shall be glad if you will look over this little work of mine, De Pictura, which I did in Tuscan for you. You will see that there are three books. The first, which is entirely mathematical, shows how this noble and beautiful art arises from roots within nature itself. The second puts the art into the hands of the artist, distinguishes its parts, and explains them all. The third instructs the artist how he may and should attain complete mastery and understanding of the art of painting. Please, therefore, read my work carefully, and if anything seems to you to need amendment, correct it. No writer was ever so well informed that learned friends were of no use to him. And I want above all to be corrected by you, so as to not be cr criticized by detractors. Dedication of De Bictura to Giovanni Francesco, illustrious prince of Mantua. I wish to present you with these books on painting, 
illustrious prince, because I observe that you take the greatest pleasure in these liberal arts, to which you will see from the books themselves when you have leisure to read them, how much light and learning I have brought with my natural talents and industry. As you rule over a city so peaceful and well-governed by your virtue that you do not lack occasional leisure from public affairs and to devote to your customary pursuit of the study of letters, I hope, with your usual kindness, in which no less than in the glory of arms and the skill of letters you excel by far all other princes, you will consider my books not unworthy of your attention. You will see they are such that their contents may prove worthy by the art of the ears of learned men, and may also easily please scholars by the novella novelty of their subject. But I will say no more of them here. You could know my character and learning, and all my qualities best, if you arrange for me to join you, as I indeed desire, and I shall believe my work had not displeased you. If you decide to enroll me as a devoted member among your servants, and to regard me as not one of the least. On Painting, Book 1 In writing about painting in these short books, we will, to make our discourse clearer, first take for mathematicians those things which seem relevant to the subject. When we have learned these, we will go on, to the best of our ability, to explain the art of painting from the basic principles of nature. But in everything we shall say, I earnestly wish it to be borne in mind that I speak in these matters not as a mathematician, but as a painter. Mathematicians measure the shapes and forms of things in the mind alone, and divorced entirely from matter. We, on the other hand, who wish to talk of things that are visible, will express ourselves in cruder terms, and we shall believe we have achieved our purpose if, in this difficult subject, which, as far as I can see, has not been before being treated by anyone else, our readers have been able to follow our meaning. I therefore ask that my work be accepted as the product not of a pure mathematician, but only of a painter. The first thing to know is that a point is a sign which one might say is not divisible into parts. I call a sign anything which exists on a surface so that it is visible to the eye. No one will deny that things which are not visible do not concern the painter, for he strives to represent only the things which are seen. Points joined together continuously in a row constitute a line, so for us a line will be a sign whose length can be divided into parts, but it will be so slender in width that it cannot be split. Some lines are called straight, others curved. A straight line is a sign extended lengthways directly from one point to another. A curved line is one which runs from point to point not along a direct path, but making a bend. If many lines are joined closely together, like threads and cloth, they will create a surface. A surface is the outer limit of a body, which is recognized not by depth, but by width and length, and also by its properties. Some of these properties are so much part of the surface that they cannot be removed or parted from it without the surface being changed. Others are ones which may present themselves to the eye in such a way that the surface appears to the beholder to have altered, when in fact the form of the surface remains unchanged. The permanent properties of surfaces are twofold. One of these we know from the outer edge in which the surface is enclosed. Some call this the horizon. We will use a metaphorical term from Latin and call it the brim or the fringe. This outline will be composed of one or more lines, of one line as a circle, or of more than one, for example, one straight and one curved line, or even several straight or curved lines. 
The circular line is the one which encloses a complete circle, and a circle is that form of surface which a line surrounds like a crown, so that if there were a point in the center, all radiuses drawn directly from that point to the crown would be equal. This median point is called the center of the circle. The straight line that cuts the crown of the circle twice and passes through the center is called by mathematicians the diameter. Let us call this the center line, and let us accept that what mathematicians tell us, that no line makes equal angles at the crown of the circle except the straight line which passes through the center. But let us come back to the surfaces. From what I have said above, it can be easily understood that if the course of the outline is altered, the surface loses its shape and original description. And what before may be called a triangle will now be known as a quadrangle, or a figure of several angles. The outline will be said to be altered if the angles or lines in it become not simply more numerous, but in some way either more obtuse or longer, or more acute or shorter. This suggests we ought to say something here about angles. An angle is the extremity of a surface made up of two mutually intersecting lines. There are three kinds of angles, right angle, obtuse angle, and acute angle. A right angle is any one of the four which is described by two straight lines intersecting each other in such a way that each angle is equal to the other three. This is why they say that all right angles are equal. An obtuse angle is one which is greater than a right angle. An acute angle is one that is less than a right angle. Let us come back to surfaces again. We explained how one property of a surface is bound up with the outline. We must now speak of other property of a surface, which, if I might put it this way, is like a skin stretched over the whole extent of the surface. It is divided into three kinds. One is said to be uniform and plain, another raised in the middle and spherical, and the third sunk in and concave. Fourthly, there should be added surfaces made up of two of these three. I will speak of them later. I am now concerned with the first three. A plane surface is one which, if you put a straight ruler on it, it touches in every part. A surface like this would be that of clear water. A spherical surface is like the outside of a sphere. A sphere is defined as a circular body, round in every way, at whose center is a point from which all the outermost parts of that body are equidistant. A concave surface is the one which lies inside, as it were, underneath the last outer layer of a sphere, as, for example, the inner surfaces of eggshells. A composite surface is one which, in one dimension, resembles a plane, and in the other, either the concave or spherical, as in the case of the inner surfaces of pipes or the outer surfaces of columns. As we have explained, the properties inherent in the periphery and conformation of bodies have determined the names given to the surfaces. Now the properties which, even when there is no change in the surface itself, do not always present the same aspect, are of two kinds, for they may seem to the observer to vary according to changes in position in lighting. We must first speak of position, then of lighting, and we must investigate how it is that, with change of position, the properties inherent in a surface appear to be altered. These matters are related to the power of vision. For, with a change of position, surfaces will appear larger, or of a completely different outline from before, or diminished in color, all of which we judge by sight. 
Let us inquire why this is so and start from the opinion of philosophers who say that services are measured by certain rays, ministers of vision, as it were, which they therefore call visual rays, since by their agency the images of things are impressed upon the senses. These rays, stretching between the eye and the surface seen, move rapidly with great power and remarkable subtlety, penetrating the air and rare and transparent bodies until they encounter something dense or opaque where their points strike and they instantly stick. Indeed, among the ancients, there was considerable dispute as to whether these rays emerged from the surface or from the eye. This truly difficult question, which is quite without value for our purposes, may here be set aside. Let us imagine the rays, like extended very fine threads, gathered tightly in a bunch at one end, going back together inside the eye where lies the sense of sight. There, they are like a trunk of rays from which, like straight shoots, the rays are released to go out towards the surface in front of them. But there is a difference between these rays which I think is essential to understand. They differ in strength and function. For some reach to the outlines of surfaces and measure all their dimensions. Let us call these extrinsic rays, since they fly out to touch the outer parts of the surface. Other rays, whether received by or flowing from the whole extent of the surface, have their particular function within the pyramid of which we shall presently speak, for they are imbued with the same color and lights with which the surface itself shines. Let us therefore call these median rays. Among them there is one which is called the centric ray, on the analogy of the centric line of we spoke of above, because it meets the surface in such a way that it makes equal angles on all sides. So we have found three kinds of rays, extrinsic, median, and centric. Let us now investigate what part each of these rays plays in the action of sight. First the eccentric, then the median, and finally the centric. Quantities are measured by the extrinsic rays, a quantity in the space across the surface between two different points on the outline, which the eye measures from the extrinsic rays rather like a pair of dividers. There are as many quantities in a surface as there are points on the outline rays are in some way opposed to one another. We use these extrinsic rays whenever we apprehend by sight the height from top to bottom or width from left to right or depth from near to far, or any other dimensions. This is why it is usually said that sight operates by means of a triangle whose base is the quantity seen and whose sides are those same rays which extend to the eye from extreme points of that quantity. It is perfectly true that no quantity can be seen without such a triangle. The sides of the visual triangle, therefore, are open. In this triangle, two of the angles are at the two ends of the quantity. The third is the one which lies within the eye and opposite the base. This is not the place to argue whether sight rests at the juncture of the inner nerve of the eye or whether images are represented on the surface of the eye, as it were in an animate mirror. I do not think it necessary here to speak of all the functions of the eye in relation to vision. It will be enough in these books to describe briefly those things that are essential to the present purpose. As, then, the visual angle resides in the eye, the following rule has been drawn. The more acute the angle within the eye, the less will appear the quantity. From this it can be clearly understood why it is that at a great distance a quantity seems to be reduced to a point.
Nonetheless, it does happen with some surfaces that the nearer the eye of the observer is to it, the less it is sees. And the further away it is, the greater the part of the surface it sees. This is seen to be the case with a spherical surface. See figure 2. Quantities, therefore, sometimes seem to the observer greater or lesser according to their distance. Anyone who has properly understood the theory behind this will plainly see that some median rays sometimes become extrinsic, and extrinsic ones median, and when the distance is changed, and he will appreciate that where the median have become extrinsic, the quantity will appear less, and conversely, when the extrinsic rays fall inside the outline, the further they are from it, the greater the quantity appears. I usually give my friends the following rule. The more rays are employed in seeing, the greater the quantity seen will appear, and the fewer the rays, the smaller the quantity. Furthermore, the extrinsic rays, which hold on like teeth to the whole of the outline, form an enclosure around the entire surface like a cage. This is why they say that vision takes place by means of a pyramid of rays. We must therefore explain what a pyramid is and how it is made up of rays. Let us describe it in our rough terms. A pyramid is a form of oblong body from whose base all straight lines, prolonged upwards, meet at one end and the same point. The base of the pyramid is the surface seen, and the sides are the visual rays we said are called extrinsic. The vertex of the pyramid resides within the eye, where the angles of the quantities of the various triangles meet together. Up to now we have dealt with the extrinsic rays of which the pyramid is composed, from all of which it is evident that it is of considerable importance what distance lies between the surface and the eye. We must now speak of the median rays. These are the mass of rays which is contained within the pyramid and enclosed by the extrinsic rays. These rays do what they say the chameleon and other like beasts are wont to do when struck with fear, who assume the colors of nearby objects so as to not be easily discovered by hunters. These median rays behave likewise, for, from their contact with the surface to the vertex of the pyramid, they are so tinged with the very colors and lights they find there, that at whatever point they are interrupted, they would show the same light they had absorbed and the same color. We know for a fact about these median rays that over a long distance they weaken and lose their sharpness. The reason why this occurs has been discovered. As they pass through the air, these are the, and all other visual rays are laden and imbued with lights and colors. But the air too is also endowed with a certain density. And in consequence, the rays get tired and lose a good part of their burden as they penetrate the atmosphere. So it is rightly said that the greater the distance, the more obscure and dimmed the surface appears. It remains for us to speak of the centric ray. We call the centric ray the one which alone strikes the quantity in such a way that the adjacent angles on all sides are equal. As for the properties of the centric ray, it is of all the rays undoubtedly the most keen and vigorous. It is also true that a quantity will never appear larger than when the centric ray rests upon it. A great deal could be said about the power and function of this ray. One thing should not be go unsaid. This ray alone is supported in their midst like a united assembly by all the others so that it must rightly be called the leader and prince of rays. Further comment would be more appropriate to a show of learning than to the things we set about to treat and may therefore be omitted here. Besides, much will be said about rays more suitably in their proper place. 
Let it suffice here, as the brevity of these books require, to have stated these things that will leave no one doubting the truth of what I believe I have adequately shown, namely, if the distance and position of the centric ray are changed, the surface appears to be altered. For it will appear either smaller or larger, or changed according to the relative disposition of the lines and angles. So the position of the centric ray and distance play a large part in the determination of sight. There is also a third condition in which surfaces present themselves to the observer as different or of diverse form. This is the reception of light. One can observe in a spherical or concave body, if there is only one source of light present, that the surface is rather dark in one part and lighter in another, whilst at the same distance and with no change of the original centric position, if the same surface lies in a different light from before, you will see as dark the parts which were bright before under the other light, and as the light, those parts that earlier were in the shadow. Then, if there are several lights around, various patches of brightness and darkness will alternate here and there according to the number and strength of the lights. This can be verified by experiment. At this juncture, we ought to say something about lights and colors. It is evident that colors vary according to light, as every color appears different when in shade and when placed under rays of light. Shade makes a color look dimmer, and lights make it bright and clear. Philosophers say that nothing is visible that is not endowed with light and color. There is, then, a very close relationship between colors and lights in the function of sight, and the extent of this can be observed in the fact that as the light disappears, so also do the colors, and when it returns, the colors come back along with the strength of the light. This being so, we must first take a look at colors. Then we will investigate how colors vary according to light. Let us leave aside the disputes of philosophers regarding the origins of colors, for what help is it to the painter to know how color is made from the mixture of rare and dense, or hot and dry, and cold and wet? Yet I would not regard these philosophers unworthy of respect who maintain that the kinds of colors are seven in number. They set white and black as the two extremes, and another halfway between, and then on both sides, between this middle, one in each extreme, they put in a pair of others, which, on some uncertainty about their boundaries, though one of each pair is more like the related extreme than the other. It is enough for the painter to know what the colors are, and how they should be used in painting. I would not wish to be contradicted by those more expert than myself who, while following the philosophers, nonetheless assert that in the nature of things there are only two true colors, white and black, and all the rest arise from the mixture of these two. My own view about colors, as a painter, is that from the mixture of colors there arises an almost infinite variety of others, but that for painters there are four true genres of colors corresponding to the number of the elements, and from these may many species are produced. There is fire color, which they call red, and the color of air, which is said to be blue-gray, and the green of water, and the earth is ash-colored. We see that all the other colors, like jasper and porphyry stone, are made from a mixture. So, there are four kinds of colors, of which there are countless species according to the admixture of white and black. For we see verdant leaves gradually lose their greenness until they become white. We also see the same thing in the air, how, when as if often the case, it is suffused around the horizon with whitish mist. It gradually changes back to its true color. Then, with roses we see too that some are rich bright red, 
others like the cheeks of maidens, and others resemble pale ivory. The color of earth also has its species according to the mixture of white and black. The admixture of white, therefore, does not alter the basic genera of colors, but creates species. Black has a similar power, for many species of colors arise from the addition of black. This is evident from the effect of shade on color. For as shade deepens, the clarity and whiteness of a color becomes less, and when the lightness increases, the color becomes clearer and brighter. The painter, therefore, may be assured that white and black are not true colors, but, one might say, moderators of color, for the painter will find nothing but white to represent the brightness, brightest glow of light, and only black for the darkest shadows. Furthermore, you will not find any white or black that does not belong to one or other of the genera of colors. Now we will speak of the effects of light. Some are the stars, such as the sun and the moon and the morning star, others of lamps and fire. There is great difference between them, for the light of stars makes shadows exactly the same size as bodies, while the shadows from fire are larger than the bodies. A shadow is made when rays of light are intercepted. Rays that are intercepted are either reflected elsewhere or return upon themselves. They are reflected, for instance, when they rebound off the surface of water onto the ceiling, and as mathematicians prove, reflection of rays almost always takes place at equal angles. But these are matters that concern another aspect of painting. Reflected rays assume the color they find on the surface from which they are reflected. They, we see this happen when the faces of people walking about in the meadows appear to have a greenish tinge. I have spoken about surfaces and about rays. I have explained how, in seeing, a pyramid is made up of triangles. We have shown how extremely important it is that distance, the position of the centric rays, and the reception of light should be determined. But as at one glance, we see not merely one but several surfaces together, now that we have dealt in some detail with single surfaces, we must inquire in what way surfaces that are connected together present themselves. As we have said, individual surfaces enjoy their own pyramid charged with its particular colors and lights. Since bodies are covered in surfaces, all the observed quantities of bodies will make up a single pyramid containing as many small pyramids as there are surfaces embraced by the rays from the point of vision. Even so, someone may ask what practical advantage all this inquiry brings to the painter. It is this. We must understand that he will become an excellent artist only if he knows well the borderlines of surfaces and their proportions, which very few do, for if they are asked what they are attempting to do on the surface they are painting, they can answer more correctly about everything else than about what it, in this sense they are doing. So I beg studious painters to listen to me. It was never shameful to learn from any teacher things that are useful to know. They should understand that when they draw lines around a surface and fill the parts they have drawn with colors, their sole object is the representation on this one surface of many different forms of surfaces, just as though this surface which they color were so transparent and like glass, and the visual pyramid passed right through it from a certain distance and with a certain position of the centric ray and of the light established at appropriate points nearby in space. Painters prove this when they move away from what they are painting and stand further back, seeking to find by the light of nature the vertex of the pyramid from which they know everything can be correctly viewed. But as it is only a single surface of a panel or a wall on which the painter strives to represent many surfaces contained within a single pyramid, 
it will be necessary for his visual pyramid to be cut off at some point, so that the painter, by drawing and coloring, can express whatever outlines and colors that intersection represents. Consequently, the viewers of a painted surface appear to be looking at a particular intersection of the pyramid. Therefore, a painting will be the intersection of a visual pyramid at a given distance with its fixed center and certain position of lights, represented by art with lines and colors on a given surface. Having said that painting represents the intersection of a pyramid, we must now examine all those things that enable us to understand that intersection. We must therefore say something further about the surfaces from which, as we have shown, the pyramids to be intersected in the painting arise. Some surfaces lie horizontally before one, like the floors of buildings and other surfaces equidistant from the floor. Others stand perpendicular, such as walls and other surfaces collinear with them. Surfaces are said to be equidistant from one another when the distance between them is the same at every point. Collinear surfaces are those which, where the continuous straight line touches equally in every part, like the surfaces of a square column standing in regular succession in an arcade. These remarks should be added to what we said above about surfaces, and to what we said about extrinsic median and centric rays. About the visual pyramid should be added the mathematical proposition that if a straight line intersects two sides of a triangle, and this intersecting line, which forms a new triangle, is equidistant from one of the sides of the first triangle, then the greater triangle will be proportioned to the lesser. This is what mathematicians affirm. In order to make our argument clear, we will explain this position more fully. Here it is necessary for the painter to know what is meant by proportional. We say that triangles are proportional when their sides and angles stand in the same relationship to each other, because if one side of a triangle is two and a half times as long as the base and the other three times, then all similar triangles, whether they are larger or smaller, will for us be proportional to one another, provided they have the same correspondence between the sides and the base. Since the ratio of one part to another is in the greater triangle is the same also in the lesser. Therefore, triangles constructed in this way are all proportional. In order that this may be even more clearly understood, we will employ a comparison. A very small man is proportional to a very large one. For there was the same proportion of span to stride and of foot to the remaining parts of the body in Evander as there was in Hercules, whom Gilius conjectures was taller and bigger than other men. Yet the proportion of the limbs of Hercules was no different from that of the body of the giant Antaeus, since the symmetry from hand to the elbow and the elbow to the head and all the other members corresponded both in similar ratio. Similarly, in triangles, there can be a certain uniformity between them whereby the lesser agrees with the greater in all respects except in size. If this is now clear, we may accept the mathematician's proposition as far as it serves our purpose and conclude that every intersection of any triangle equidistant from its base will create a triangle proportional to the larger triangle. In things which are proportional to one another, all the parts correspond, but those which have different and incongruous parts are in no sense proportional. The parts of the visual triangle are the angles and the rays, which in proportional quantities will be equal, and in non-proportional quantities unequal. For in any one of these non-proportional quantities, seen will occupy either more or less rays. 
you have seen how any lesser triangle may be proportional to a greater, and remember that the visual pyramid is made up of triangles, so all we have said about triangles may be transferred to the pyramid. And we may be sure that no quantities of the surface that are equidistant from the intersection of the pyramid undergo any change in the painting. For those equidistant quantities are equal at any equidistant intersection to those proportional to them. From this it follows that if the quantities that make up the outline of a surface are not changed, there occurs no change in that outline in the painting. And so it is clear that any intersection of the visual pyramid equidistant from the surface seen is proportional to the surface. We have spoken of the surfaces proportional to the intersection, that is, equidistant from the painting surface. But as many surfaces are not equidistant from the painting surface, we must inquire carefully into these so that the entire system of the intersection may be made clear. Yet it would be a long, difficult, and extremely involved task to pursue all the mathematician's rules in these intersections of triangles in the pyramid. Let us proceed to deal with the matter as painters. Let us briefly say something about non-equidistant quantities from an understanding of which it will be easy to learn all about the non-equidistant surface. Of non-equidistant quantities, some are collinear to the visual rays. Others are equidistant from some visual rays. Quantities collinear to the rays occupy no room at the intersection, as they make no triangle and occupy no number of rays. But in quantities equidistant from the visual rays, the more obtuse the greater angle is to the base of the triangle, the fewer the rays that quantity will occupy, and consequently, the less space it will take up in that intersection. We have said that surfaces were covered in quantities, but as it not infrequently happens in surfaces that there are some quantities equidistant from the intersection, while the rest are not, for this reason, only those that are equidistant undergo no change in the painting, and the non-equidistant quantities suffer the more alteration, the more obtuse is the greater angle of their triangle to the base. To all these remarks should be added that belief of philosophers that if the sky, the stars, the seas, the mountains, and all the living creatures, together with all other objects, were, the gods willing, reduced to half their size, everything that we see would in no respect appear to be diminished from what it is now. Large, small, long, short, high, low, wide, narrow, light, dark, bright, gloomy, and everything of the kind, which philosophers termed accidents, because they may or may not be present in things, all these are such as to be known only by comparison. Virgil says that Aeneas stands head and shoulders above other men, but if compared with Polyphemus, he will seem a pygmy. They said that Euralis was most beautiful, but if compared to Ganymede, who was carried off by the gods, he might appear to be ugly. The Spaniards think many young maidens fair, whom the Germans would regard as swarthy and dark. Ivory and silver are white, but compared to the swan or snow-white linen, they appear rather pale. For this reason, the surfaces will appear very clear and bright in a painting when there is the same proportion of white to black in it as there is of light to shade in objects themselves. All these things, then, are learned by comparison. There is a comparison of power which enables us to recognize the presence of more or less, or just the same. So we call large what is bigger than this small thing, and very large what is bigger than the large, 
and bright what is lighter than the dark object, and very bright what is brighter than the light. Comparison is made with things most immediately known. As man is the best known of all things to man, perhaps Protagoras, in saying that man is the scale and the measure of all things, meant that accidents in all things are duly compared to and known by the accidents in man. All of which should persuade us that, however small you paint the objects in a painting, they will seem large or small according to the size of any man in the picture. Of all the ancients, the painter, Timanthes, always seemed to me to have observed this force of comparison best. They say that he represented on a small panel a cyclops asleep, and put in next to him some satyrs embracing his thumb, so that the sleeping figure appeared very large indeed in proportion to the satyrs. Up to now, we have explained everything related to the power of sight and the understanding of the intersection. But, as it is relevant to know, not simply what the intersection is and what it consists in, but also how it can be constructed, we must now explain the art of expressing the intersection in painting. Let me tell you what I do when I am painting. First of all, on the surface on which I am going to paint, I draw a rectangle of whatever size I want, which I regard as an open window through which the object to be painted is seen. I decide how large I wish the human figures in the painting to be. I divide the height of this man into three parts, which will be proportional to the measure commonly called a brachio. For, as may be seen from the relationship of his limbs, three brachia is just about the average height of a man's body. With this measure, I divide the bottom line of my rectangle into as many parts as it will hold. For this bottom line of the rectangle is for me proportional to the nearest transverse equidistant quantity seen on the pavement. Then I establish a point in the rectangle whenever I wish, and as it occupies the space where the centric rays strike, I shall call this the centric point. The suitable position for this centric point is no higher from the baseline than the height of the man to be represented in the painting. For, in this way, both the viewers and the objects in the painting will seem to be the same plane. Having placed the centric point, I draw lines, straight lines from it to each of the divisions of the baseline. These lines show me how successive transverse quantities visually change to an almost infinite distance. At this stage, some would draw a line across the rectangle equidistant from the divided line, and then divide the space between these two lines into three parts. Then, to that second equidistant line, they would add another above, following the rule that the space which is divided into three parts between the first divided, the baseline, and the second equidistant one, shall exceed by one of its parts the space between the second and the third lines. And they would go on to add other lines in such a way that each succeeding space between them should always be to the one preceding it, as in the relationship, in mathematical terminology, of super bipartians. This would be their way of proceeding, and although people say they are following an excellent method of painting, I believe they are not a little mistaken, because having placed the first equidistant line at random, even though the other equidistant lines follow with some system and reason, Nonetheless, they do not know where the fixed position of the vertex of the pyramid is for correct viewing. For this reason, quite serious mistakes occur in painting. 
What is more, the method of such people would be completely faulty where the centric point were higher or lower than the height of a man in the picture. Besides, no learned person will deny that no objects in a painting can appear like real objects unless they stand to each other in a determined relationship. We will explain the theory behind this if ever we write about the demonstrations of paintings, which our friends marveled at when we did them, and call them miracles of painting, for the things I have said are extremely relevant to this aspect of the subject. Let us return, therefore, to what we were saying. With regard to the question outlined above, I discovered the following excellent method. I follow in all other respects the same procedure I mentioned above about placing the center point, dividing the baseline, and drawing lines from that point to each of the divisions of the baseline. But as regards the success of transverse quantities, I observe the following method. I have a drawing surface on which I describe a single straight line, and this I divide into parts like those into which the baseline of the rectangle is divided. Then I place a point above this line, directly over one end of it, at the same height as the centric point is from the baseline of the rectangle, and from this point I draw lines to each of the divisions of the line. When I determine the distance I want between the eye of the spectator and the painting, and having established the position of the intersection at this distance, I affect the intersection with what mathematicians call a perpendicular. A perpendicular is a line which, at the intersection with another straight line, makes right angles on all sides. This perpendicular will give me, at the places it cuts in other lines, the measure of what the distance should be in each case between the transverse equidistant lines of the pavement. In this way, I have all the parallels of the pavement drawn. A parallel is the space between two equidistant lines, of which we spoke at some length above. A proof of whether they are correctly drawn will be if a single straight line forms the diagonal of connected quad quadrangles in the pavement. The diagonal of a quadrangle for mathematicians is the straight line drawn from one angle to the angle opposite it, which divides the quadrangle into two parts so as to create two triangles from it. When I have carefully done these things, I draw a line across, equidistant from the other lines below which cuts the two upright sides of the large rectangle and passes through the centric point. This line is, for me, a limit or boundary, which no quantity exceeds that is not higher than the eye of the spectator. As it passes through the centric point, this line may be called the centric line. This is why men depicted standing in the parallel furthest away are a great deal smaller than those of the nearer ones a phenomenon which is clearly demonstrated by nature herself. For in churches, as we see the heads of men walking about, moving at more or less the same height, while the feet of those further away may correspond to the knee level of those in front. This method of dividing up the pavement pertains especially to that part of painting which, when we come to it, we shall call composition. And it is such that I fear it may be little understood by readers on account of the novelty of the subject and the brevity of our description. As we can easily judge from the works of former ages, this matter probably remained completely unknown to our ancestors because of its obscurity and difficulty. You will hardly find any historia on the ancients properly composed either in painting or modeling or sculpture. I have set out the foregoing briefly and, I believe, in a not altogether obscure fashion. But I realize the content is such that, while I can claim no praise for eloquence and exposition, 
The reader who does not understand at first acquaintance will probably never grasp it, however hard he tries. To intelligent minds that are well disposed to painting, those things are simple and splendid, however presented, which are disagreeable to gross intellects, little disposed to these noble arts, even if expounded by the most eloquent writers. As they have been explained by me briefly and without eloquence, they will probably not be read without some distaste. Yet I crave indulgence if, in my desire above all to be understood, I saw to it that my exposition should be clear rather than elegant and ornate. What follows will, I hope, be less disagreeable to the reader. I have set out whatever seemed necessary to say about triangles, the pyramids, and the intersection. I used to demonstrate these things at greater length to my friends with some geometrical explanation. I considered it best to omit this from these books for reasons of brevity. I have outlined here as a painter, speaking to painters, only the first rudiments of the art of painting. And I have called them rudiments because they lay the first foundations of the art for unlearned painters. They are such that whoever has grasped them properly will see they are of considerable benefit, not only to his own talent and to understanding the definition of painting, but also to the appreciation of what we are going to say later on. Let no one doubt that the man who does not perfectly understand what he is attempting to do when painting will never be a good painter. It is useless to draw the bow unless you have a target to aim the arrow at. I want us to be convinced that he alone will be an excellent painter who has learned thoroughly to understand the outlines and all the properties of surfaces. On the other hand, I believe that he who has not diligently mastered all we have said will never be a good artist. These remarks on surfaces and intersection were, therefore, essential for our purposes. We will now go on to instruct the painter how he can represent with his hand what he has understood with his mind. Book 2. As the effort of learning may perhaps seem to the young too laborious, I think I should explain here how painting is worthy of all our attention and study. Painting possesses a truly divine power in that not only does it make the absent present, as they say, of friendship, but it also represents the dead to the living many centuries later, so that they are recognized by spectators with pleasure and deep admiration for the artist. Plutarch tells us that Cassandras, one of Alexander's commanders, trembled all over at the sight of a portrait of the deceased Alexander, in which he recognized the majesty of his king. He also tells us how Agesilus, the Lacedaemonian, realized that he was very ugly, refused to allow his likeness to be known to posterity, and so would not be painted or modeled by anyone. Through painting, the faces of the dead go on living for a very long time. We should also consider it a very great gift to men that painting has represented the gods they worship, for painting has contributed considerably to the piety which binds us to the gods, and to filling our minds with sound religious beliefs. It is said that Phidias made a statue of Jove and Ellis, whose beauty added not a little to the received religion. How much painting contributes to the honest pleasures of the mind and to the beauty of things may be seen in various ways, but especially in the fact that you will find nothing so precious which the associations with painting does not render far more valuable and highly prized. Ivory gems and all other similar precious things are made more valuable by the hand of the painter. Gold, too, when embellished by the art of painting, is equal in value to a far larger quantity of gold. 
even lead, the bases of metals, if it were formed into some image of the hand of Phidias or Praxiteles, would probably be regarded as more precious than rough, unworked silver. The painter Zeusus began to give his works away because, as he said, they could not be bought for money. He did not believe any price could be found to recompense the man who, in modeling or painting living things, behaved like a god among mortals. The virtues of painting, therefore, are that its masters see their works admired and feel themselves to be almost like the creator. Is it not true that painting is the mistress of all the arts, or their principal ornament? If I am not mistaken, the architect took from the painter architraves, capitals, bases, columns, and pediments, and all the other fine features of buildings. The stonemason, the sculptor, and all the workshops and crafts of artificers are guided by the rule and art of the painter. Indeed, hardly any art except the very meanest can be found that does not somehow pertain to painting. So I would venture to assert that whatever beauty there is in things has been divided and derived from painting. Painting was honored by our ancestors with this special distinction that, whereas all other artists were called craftsmen, the painter alone was not counted among their number. Consequently, I used to tell my friends that the inventor of painting, according to the poets, was Narcissus, who was turned into a flower. For as painting is the flower of all the arts, so the tale of Narcissus fits our purpose perfectly. What is painting but the act of embracing by means of art the surface of the pool? Quintilian believed that the earliest painters used to draw around shadows made by the sun, and the art eventually grew by a process of additions. Some say that an Egyptian Philocles and a certain Clenthes were among the first inventors of this art. The Egyptians say painting was practiced in their country 6,000 years before it was brought over into Greece. Our writers say it came from Greece to Italy after the victories of Marcellus in Sicily. But it is of little concern to us to discover the first painters of the inventors of the art, since we are not writing a history of painting like Pliny, but treating the art in an entirely new way. On the subject there exists today none of the writings of the ancients, as far as I have seen, although they say that Euphranor the Isthmian wrote something about symmetry and colors, that Antigonus and Xenocrates set down some words about paintings, and that Apelles wrote on painting to Perseus. Diogenes Laertius tells us that the philosopher Demetrius also wrote about painting. Since all the other liberal arts were committed to writing by our ancestors, I believe that painting too was not neglected by our authors of Italy, for the ancient Etruscans were the most expert in all Italy in the art of painting. The ancient writer Trimagistus believes that sculpture and painting originated together with religion. He addresses Asclepius with these words, Man, mindful of his nature and origin, represented the gods in his own likeness. Yet who will deny that painting has assumed the most honored part in all things, both public and private, profane and religious, to such an extent that no art, I find, has been so highly valued universally among men? Almost incredible prices are quoted for painted panels. The Theban Aristides sold one painting alone for a hundred talents. They say that Rhodes was not burned down by King Demetrius, lest a painting by Protogenes be destroyed. So we can say that Rhodes was redeemed from the enemy by a single picture. Many other similar tales were collected by writers, from which you can clearly see that good painters always and everywhere were held in the highest esteem and honor, so that even the most noble and distinguished citizens and philosophers and kings took great pleasure not only in seeing and possessing paintings, but also in painting themselves. Almanlius, a Roman citizen, 
and the noble Menphabius were painters. Terpilius, a Roman knight, painted at Verona. Satidius, praetor and proconsul, acquired fame in painting. Pacavius, the tragedian, nephew of the poet Aeneas, painted Hercules in the Forum. The philosophers Socrates, Plato, Metrodorus, and Pharaoh achieved distinction in painting. The emperors Nero, Valentinius, Alexander Servius were very devoted to painting. It would be a long story to tell how many princes and kings have devoted themselves to this most noble art. Besides, it is not appropriate to review all the multitude of ancient painters. Its size may be understood from the fact that for Demetrius of Phalerum, son of Phasteratus, 360 statues were completed within 400 days, some of the horseback and some in chariots. In a city in which there was so large a number of sculptors, shall we not believe there were also many painters? Painting and sculpture are cognate arts, nurtured by the same genius. But I shall always prefer the genius of the painter, as it attempts by far the most difficult task. Let us return to what we were saying. The number of painters and sculptors was enormous in these days, when princes and people, and learned and unlearned alike, delighted in painting and statues and pictures were displayed in the theater among the chief spoils brought from the provinces. Eventually, Paulus Aemilius and other Roman citizens taught their sons painting among the liberal arts in the pursuit of a good and happy life. The excellent custom was especially observed among the Greeks that free-born and liberally educated young people were also taught the art of painting together with letters, geometry, and music. Indeed, the skill of painting was a mark of honor also in women, Marcia, Varro's daughter, is celebrated by writers for her painting. The art was held in such high esteem and honor that it was forbidden by law among the Greeks for slaves to learn to paint, and quite rightly so, for the art of painting is indeed worthy of free minds and noble intellects. I have always regarded as a mark of an excellent and superior mind in any person whom I saw take great delight in painting. Although this art alone is equally pleasing to both learned and unlearned, and it rarely happens in any other art that what pleases the knowledgeable also attracts the ignorant. You will not easily find anyone who does not earnestly desire to be accomplished in painting. Indeed, it is evident that nature herself delights in painting, for we observe she often fashions in marble, hippocentaurs, and bearded faces of kings. It is also said that in a gym owned by Pyrrhus, the nine muses were clearly depicted by nature complete with their insignia. Furthermore, there is no other art in whose study and practice all ages of learned and unlearned alike may engage with such pleasure. Let me speak of my own experience. Whenever I devote myself to painting for pleasure, which I very often do when I have leisure from other affairs, I persevere with such pleasure in finishing my work that I can hardly believe later that three or even four hours have gone by. This art, then, brings pleasure while you practice it, and praise riches and endless fame when you have cultivated it well. Therefore, as painting is the finest and most ancient ornaments of things, worthy of free men and pleasing to learned and unlearned alike, I earnestly beseech young students to devote themselves to painting as much as they can. Next, I would advise those who are devoted to painting to go on to master with every effort and care this perfect art of painting. You who strive to excel in painting should cultivate above all the fame and reputation which you see the ancients attained. 
and in so doing, it will be a good thing to remember that avarice was always the enemy of renown and virtue. A mind intent on gain will rarely obtain the reward of fame with posterity. I have seen many in the very flower, as it were, of learning, descend to gain and thereafter obtain neither riches nor distinction, who, if they had improved their talent with application, would easily have risen to fame and there receive both wealth and the satisfaction of renown. We have said enough in these matters. Let us return to our purpose. We divide painting into three parts, and this division we learn from nature herself. As painting aims to represent things seen, let us note how, in fact, things are seen. In the first place, when we look at a thing, we see it as an object which occupies a space. The painter will draw around this space, and he will call this process of setting down the outline, appropriately, circumscription. Then as we look, we discern how the several surfaces of the object seen are fitted together. The artist, when drawing these combinations of surfaces in their correct relationship, will properly call this composition. Finally, in looking, we observe more clearly the colors of surfaces, the representation and painting of this aspect, since it receives all its variation from light, will aptly here be termed the reception of light. Therefore, circumscription, composition, and reception of light make up painting, and with these we must now deal as briefly as possible. First, circumscription. Circumscription is the process of delineating the external outlines of the painting. They say that Parhasius, the painter with whom Socrates speaks in Xenophon, was very expert in this and studied these lines very closely. I believe one should take care that circumscription is done with the finest possible, almost invisible lines, like those they say the painter Apelles used to practice and vie with protegenes at drawing. Circumscription is simply the recording of the outline, and if it is done with a very visible line, they will look in the painting, not like the margins of the surfaces, but like cracks. I want only the external outlines to be set down in circumscription, and this should be practiced assiduously. No composition and no reception of life will be praised without the presence of circumscription. But circumscription by itself is very often most pleasing. So attention should be devoted to circumscription, and to do this well, I believe nothing more convenient can be found than the veil, which among my friends I call the intersection, and whose usage I was the first to discover. It is like this. A veil loosely woven of fine thread, dyed whatever color you please, divided up by thicker threads into as many parallel square sections as you like, and stretched in a frame. I set this up between the eye and the object to be represented, so that the visual pyramid passes through the loose weave of the veil. This intersection of the veil has many advantages, first of all because it always represents the same surfaces unchanged. For once you have fixed the position of the outlines, you can immediately find the apex of the pyramid you started with, which is extremely difficult to do without the intersection. You know how impossible it is to paint something which does not continually present the same aspect. This is why people can copy paintings more easily than sculptures, as they always look the same. You also know that if the distance and the position of the centric ray are changed, the thing seen appears to be altered. So the veil will give you the not inconsiderable advantage I have indicated, namely that the object seen will always keep the same appearance. A further advantage is that the position of the outlines and the boundaries of the surfaces 
can easily be established accurately on the painting panel. Just as you see the forehead in one parallel, the nose in the next, the cheeks in another, the chin in one below, and everything else in its particular place, so you can situate precisely all the features on the panel or wall, which you have similarly divided into appropriate parallels. Lastly, this veil affords the greatest assistance in executing your picture since you can see any object that is round and in relief represented on the flat surface of the veil, from all of which we may appreciate by reflection the experience how useful the veil is for painting easily and correctly. I will not listen to those who say it is no good for a painter to get into the habit of using these things, because though they offer him the greatest help in painting, they make the artist unable to do anything by himself without them. If I am not mistaken, we do not ask for infinite labor from the painter, but we do expect a painting that appears markedly in relief and similar to the objects presented. I do not understand how anyone could ever even moderately achieve this without the help of the veil. So those who are anxious to advance in the art of painting should use this intersection or veil as I have explained. Should they wish to try their talents without the veil, they should imitate the system of parallels with the eye so that they always imagine a horizontal line cut by another perpendicular at the point where they establish in the picture the edge of the objects they observe. But as for many inexpert painters, the outlines of surfaces are vague and uncertain. As for example in faces, because they cannot determine at what point, more particularly, the temples are distinguished from the forehead. They must be taught how they may acquire this knowledge. Nature demonstrates this very clearly. Just as we see flat surfaces distinguished by their own lights and shades, so we may see spherical and concave surfaces divided up, as it were, in squares into several surfaces by different patches of light and shade. These individual parts, distinguished by light and shade, are therefore to be treated as a single surface. If the surface seen proceeds from a dark color gradually lightening to bright, then you should mark with a line the midpoint between the two parts, so that the way in which you should color the whole area is made less uncertain. It remains for us to say something further about circumscription, which also pertains in no small measure to composition. For this purpose, one should know that composition is in painting. Composition is that procedure in painting whereby the parts are composed together in a picture. The great work of the painter is the historia. Parts of the historia are the bodies. Part of the body is the member, and part of the member is a surface. A circumscription and the procedure in painting whereby the outlines of the surfaces are drawn, and as some surfaces are small, as in the living creatures, while others are very large, as in buildings and giant statues, the precepts we have given so far may suffice for drawing the small surfaces, for we have shown that they can be measured with the veil. For the larger surfaces, a new method must be found. In this connection, one should remember all we said above in our rudiments about surfaces, rays, pyramid, and intersection. You will also recall that I wrote about the parallels of the pavement and the centric point and line. On the pavement that is divided up into parallels, you have to construct the sides of walls and other similar surfaces which, have, which we have described as perpendicular. I'll explain briefly how I proceed in this construction. I begin first from the foundations. I draw the breadth and length of the walls and the pavement, and in doing this I observe from nature that more than two connected sur standing surfaces of any square right-angled body could not be seen at one glance. 
So in drawing the foundations of the walls, I take care that I outline only those sides that are visible. And I always begin from the nearer surfaces, and particularly from those that are equidistant from the intersection. I draw these before the rest, and I determine what I wish their length and breadth to be by the parallels traced on the pavement, for I take up as many parallels as I want them to be brachia. I find the middle of the parallels from the intersection of the two diagonals, as the intersection of one diagonal by another marks the middle point of a quadrangle. So, from the scale of the parallels, I easily draw the width and length of walls that rise from the ground. Then I go from there without any difficulty to do the heights of the surfaces, since a quantity will maintain the same proportion for its whole height as that which exists between the centric lines and the position on the pavement from which that quantity of the building rises. So if you want this quantity from the ground to the top to be four times the height of a man in the picture and the centric line has been placed at the height of a man, then it will be three brachia from the foot of the quantity to the centric line. But as you wish this quantity increased to 12 brachia, you must continue it upwards three times again the distance from the centric line to the foot of the quantity. Thus, by the methods I have described, we can correctly draw all surfaces containing angles. It remains for us to explain how one draws the outlines of circular surfaces. These can be derived from angular surfaces. I do this as follows. I draw a rectangle on the drawing board and dividing its sides into parts like those of the baseline of the, the rectangle of the picture. Then by drawing lines from each point of these divisions to the one opposite, I fill the area with small rectangles. On this, I inscribe a circle the size I want, so that the circle and the parallels intersect each other. I note all the points of intersection accurately, and then mark these positions in their respective parallels of the pavement in the picture. But as it would be an immense labor to cut the whole circle at many places with an almost infinite number of small parallels until the outline of the circle were continuously marked with a numerous succession of points, when I have noted eight or some other suitable number of intersections, I use my judgment to set down the circumference of the circle in the painting in accordance with those indications. Perhaps a quicker way would be to draw this outline from a shadow cast by a light, provided the object making the shadow were interposed correctly at the proper place. We have now explained how the larger angular and circular surfaces are drawn with the aid of the parallels. Having completed circumscription, we must now speak of composition. To this end, we must repeat what composition is. Composition is the procedure in painting whereby the parts are composed together in the picture. The great work of the painter is not a colossus, but a historia, for there is far more merit in a historia than in a colossus. Parts of the historia are the bodies, part of the body is the member, and part of the member is the surface. The principal parts of the work are the surfaces because from these come the members, from the members, the bodies, from the bodies, the historia, and finally the finished work of the painter. From the composition of surfaces arises that elegant harmony and grace in bodies, which they call beauty. The face, which has some surfaces large and others small, some very prominent and others excessively receding and hollow, such as we see in the faces of old women, will be ugly to look at. But the face in which the surfaces are so joined together that pleasing lights pass gradually into agreeable shadows and there are no very sharp angles, we may rightly call a handsome and beautiful face. So in the composition of surfaces, 
grace and beauty must above all be sought. In order to achieve this, there seems to be no surer way than to look at nature and observe long and carefully how she, the wonderful maker of things, has composed the surfaces in beautiful members. We should apply ourselves with all our thought and attention to imitating her, and take delight in using the veil I spoke of. And when we are about to put into our work the surfaces taken from beautiful bodies, we will always first determine their exact limits, so that we may direct our lines to their correct place. So far we have spoken of the composition of surfaces. Now we must give some account to the composition of members. In the composition of members, care should be taken above all that all the members accord well with one another. They are said to accord well with one another when in size, function, kind, color, and other similar respects they correspond to grace and beauty. For if in a picture the head is enormous, the chest puny, the hand very large, the foot swollen, and the body distended, this composition will certainly be ugly to look at. So one must observe a certain conformity in regard to the size of members. And in this it will help when painting living creatures, first to sketch in the bones, for as they bend very little indeed, they always occupy a certain determined position. Then add the sinews and the muscles, and finally clothe the bones and muscles with flesh and skin. But at this point, I see there will be perhaps be some who will raise as an objection something I said above, namely, that the painter is not concerned with things that are not visible. They would be right to do so, except that, just as for a clothed figure, we must first have to draw the naked body beneath and then cover it with clothes. So in painting a nude, the bones and muscles must be arranged first and then covered with appropriate flesh and skin in such a way that it is not difficult to perceive the positions of the muscles. As nature clearly and openly reveals all these proportions, so the zealous painter will find great profit from investigating them in nature for himself. Therefore, studious painters should apply themselves to this task and understand that the more care and labor they put into studying the proportions of members, the more it helps them to fix in their minds the things they have learned. I would advise one thing, however, that in assessing the proportions of a living creature, we should take one member of it by which the rest are measured. The architect Vitruvius reckons the height of a man in feet. I think it more suitable if the rest of the limbs are related to the size of the head, although I observed it to be well nigh a common fact in men that the length of the foot is the same as the distance from the chin to the top of the head. Having selected this one member, the rest should be accommodated to it, so that there is no member of the whole body that does not correspond with the others in length and breadth. Then we must ensure that all the members fulfill their proper function according to the action being performed. It is appropriate for a running man to throw his hands about as well as his feet, but I prefer a philosopher when speaking to show modesty in every limb than the attitudes of a wrestler. The painter Damon represented an armed man in a race so that you would have said he was sweating and another taking off his arms, so lifelike that he seemed clearly to be grasping, gasping for breath. And someone painted Ulysses in such a way that you could tell he was not really mad, but only pretending. They praise a historia in Rome in which the dead Mleger is being carried away because those who are burying the dead appear to be distressed and to strain with every limb. While in the dead man there is no member that does not seem completely lifeless, 
they all hang loose. Hands, fingers, neck, all droop inertly down, all combine together to represent death. This is the most difficult thing to do, for to represent the limbs of a body entirely at rest is as much the sign of an excellent artist as to render them all alive and in action. So in every painting, the principle should be observed that all the members should fulfill their function according to the action performed, in such a way that not even the smallest limb fails to play its appropriate part, that the members of the dead appear dead down to the smallest details, and those of the living completely alive. A body is said to be alive when it performs some movement of its own free will. Death, they say, is present when the limbs carry no longer carry out the duties of life, that is, movement and feeling. So the painter who wishes his representations of bodies to appear alive should see to it that all their members perform their appropriate movements. But in every movement, beauty and grace should be sought after. Those movements are especially lively and pleasing that are directed upward into the air. We have also said that the regard should be had to similarity of kind in the composition of members, for it would be ridiculous that the hands of Helen or if Genia looked old and rustic, or if Nestor had a youthful breast and a soft neck, or Ganymede a wrinkled brow and the legs of a prize fighter, or if we gave Milo, the strongest man of all, light and slender flanks. It would also be unseemly to put emaciated arms and hands on a figure in which the face were firm and plump. Conversely, whoever painted Achimedes discovered on an island by Aeneas that the face Virgil says he had, and the rest of the body did not accord with that face, would certainly be ridiculous in a net painter. Therefore, every part should agree in kind. And I would also ask that they correspond in color too. For to those who have pink, white, and agreeable faces, dark forbidding breasts and other parts are completely unsuitable. So, in the composition of members, what we have said about size, function, kind, and color should be observed. Everything should also conform to a certain dignity. It is not suitable for Venus or Minerva to be dressed in military cloaks, and it would be improper for you to dress Jupiter or Mars in women's clothes. The early painters took care when representing Castor and Pollux that, though they looked like twins, you could tell one was a fighter and the other very agile. They also made Vulcan's limp show beneath his clothing so that so great was their attention to representing what was necessary according to function, kind, and dignity. Now follows the composition of bodies in which all the skill and merit of the painter lies. Some of the things we said about the composition of members pertains also to this. For all the bodies in the Historia must conform in function and size. If you painted centaurs in an uproar at dinner, it would be absurd amid this violent commotion for one of them to be lying there asleep from drinking wine. It would be a fault if at the same distance some men were a great deal bigger than others, or dogs the same size as horses in your picture. Another thing I often see deserves to be censured, and that is men painted in a building as if they were shut up in a box in which they, were, they can hardly fit, sitting down and rolled up in a ball. So all the bodies should conform in size, function to the subject of the action. A historia you can justifiably praise and admire will be one that reveals itself to be so charming and attractive as to hold the eye of the learned and unlearned spectator for a long while with a certain sense of pleasure and emotion. The first thing that gives pleasure in a historia is a plentiful variety, just as with food and music, 
Novel and extraordinary things delight us for various reasons, but especially because they are different from the old ones we are used to. So with everything, the mind takes great pleasure in variety and abundance. So in painting, variety of bodies and colors is pleasing. I would say a picture was richly varied if it contained a properly arranged mixture of old men, youths, boys, matrons, maidens, children, domestic animals, dogs, birds, horses, sheep, buildings, and provinces. And I would praise any great variety, provided it is appropriate to what is going on in the picture. When the spectators dwell on observing all the details, then the painter's richness will acquire flavor. But I would have this abundance not only furnished with variety, but restrained and full of dignity and modesty. I disapprove of those painters who, in their desire to appear rich or to leave no space empty, follow no system of composition, but scatter everything about in random confusion, with the result that their historia does not appear to be doing anything but merely to be in turmoil. Perhaps the artist who seeks dignity above all in his historia ought to represent very few figures, for his paucity of words imparts majesty to a prince, provided his thoughts and orders are understood, so the presence of only the strictly necessary numbers of bodies confers dignity on a picture. I do not like a picture to be virtually empty, but I do not approve of an abundance that lacks dignity. In a historia, I strongly approve of the practice I see observed by tragic and comic poets, of telling the story with as few characters as possible. In my opinion, there will be no historia so rich in variety of things that nine or ten men cannot worthily perform it. I think Varro's dictum is relevant here. He allowed no more than nine guests at dinner to avoid disorder. Though variety is pleasing in any historia, a picture in which the attitudes and movements of the bodies differ very much among themselves is most pleasing of all. So let there be some visible full face, with their hands turned upwards and fingers raised and resting on one foot, others should have their faces turned away, their arms by their sides and feet together, and each one of them should have his own particular flexions and movements. Others should be seated or resting on bended knee, or almost lying down. If suitable, let some be naked, and let some others stand around who are half away between the two, part clothed and part naked. But let us always observe decency and modesty. The obscene parts of the body and all those that are not very pleasing to look at should be covered with clothing or leaves or the hand. Apelles painted the portrait of Antigonus only from the side of his face away from his bad eye. They say Pericles had a rather long misshapen head and so he used to have his portrait done by painters and sculptors not like other people with head bare but wearing his helmet. Plutarch tells how the ancient painters when painting kings who had some physical defect, did not wish this to appear to have been overlooked, but they corrected it as far as possible while still maintaining the likeness. Therefore, I would have decency and modesty observed in every historia in such a way that ugly things are neither omitted or amended. Lastly, as I said, I think one should take care that the same gesture or attitude does not appear in any of the figures. A historian will move spectators when the men painted in the picture outwardly demonstrate their own feelings as clearly as possible. Nature provides, and there is nothing to be found more rapacious of her than she, that we mourn with the mourners, laugh with those who laugh, and grieve with the grief-stricken. 
Yet, these feelings are known from movements of the body. We see how the melancholy, preoccupied with cares and beset by grief, lack all vitality of feeling and action, and remain sluggish, their limbs unsteady and drained of color. In those who mourn, the brow is weighed down, the neck bent, and every part of their body droops as though weary and past care. But in those who are angry, their passions aflame with ire, face and eyes become swollen and red, and the movements of all their limbs are violent and agitated according to the fury of their wrath. Yet when we are happy and gay, our movements are free and pleasing in their inflections. They praise Euphenor because in his portrait of Alexander Paris, he did the face and expression in such a way that you could recognize him simultaneously as the judge of the goddesses, the lover of Helen, and the slayer of Achilles. The painter Damon's remarkable merit is that you could easily see in his painting the wrathful, unjust, and inconstant, as well as the exorable and clement, the merciful, the proud, the humble, and the fierce. They say the Theban Aristides, the contemporary of Apelles, represented these emotions best of all. And we, too, will certainly do the same, provided we dedicate the necessary study and care to this matter. The painter, therefore, must know all about the movements of the body, which I believe he must take from nature with great skill. It is extremely difficult to vary the movements of the body in accordance with the almost infinite movements of the heart. Who, unless he has tried, would believe it such a difficult thing when you want to represent laughing faces to avoid their appearing tearful rather than happy? And who, without the greatest labor, study, and care, could represent faces in which the mouth and chin and eyes and cheeks and forehead and eyebrows all accord together in grief or hilarity. All these things then must be sought with the greatest diligence from nature and always directly imitated, preferring those in painting which leave more for the mind to discover than is actually apparent to the eye. Let me here, however, speak of some things concerning movements, partly made up from my own thoughts and partly learned from nature. First, I believe that all the bodies should move in relationship to one another with a certain harmony in accordance with the action. Then, I like there to be someone in the historia who tells the spectators what is going on, and either beckons them with his hand to look, or with ferocious expression and forbidding glance, challenge them to not come near, as if he wished their business to be secret, or points to some danger or remarkable thing in the picture, or by his gestures invites you to laugh or weep with him. Everything that people in the painting do among themselves, or perform in relationship to the spectators, must fit together to represent and explain the historia. They praised Timothea of Cyprus for the painting in which he surpassed Colotes, because when he had made Colotes sad, and Ulysses even sadder, at the surface of, at the sacrifice of Iphigenia, and employed all his art and skill on the grief-stricken Menelius, he could find no more suitable way to represent the expressions of her disconsolate father. So he covered his head with a veil, and thus left more for the onlooker to imagine about his grief than he could see with the eye. They also praise in Rome the boat in which our Tuscan painter Giotto represented the eleven disciples stuck with fear and wonder at the sight of their colleague walking on the water each showing such clear signs of his agitation in his face and entire body that their individual emotions are discernible in every one of them. We must, however, deal briefly with this whole matter of movements.
Some movements are of the mind, which the learned call dispositions, such as anger, grief, joy, fear, desire, and so on. Others are of the body, for bodies are said to move in various ways, as when they grow or diminish, when they fall ill or recover from sickness, and when they change position and so on. We painters, however, who wish to represent emotions through the movements of limbs, may leave other arguments aside and speak only of the movement that occurs when there is a change of position. Everything which changes position has seven directions of movement, either up or down, or to right or left, or going away in the distance or coming towards us, and the seventh is going around in a circle. I want all these seven movements to be in a painting. There should be some bodies that face towards us, and others going away, to right or left. Of these same parts should be shown towards the spectators, and others should be turned away. Some should be raised upwards, and others directed downwards. Since, however, the bounds of reason are often exceeded in representing these movements, it will be of help here to say some things about the attitude and movement of limbs, which I have gathered from nature, and from which it will be clear what moderation should be used concerning them. I have observed how in every attitude a man positions his whole body beneath his head, which is the heaviest member of all. And if he rests his entire weight on one foot, this foot is always perpendicular beneath his head, like the base of a column. And the face of a person standing is usually turned in the direction in which his foot is pointing. But I have noticed that the movements of the head in any direction are hardly ever such that he does not always have some other part of the body positioned beneath to sustain the enormous weight. Or at least he extends some limb in the opposite direction, like the other arm of a balance, to correspond to that weight. When someone holds a weight on his outstretched hand, we see how, with one foot fixed like the axis of a balance, the rest of the body is counterpoised to balance the weight. I have also seen that the head of a man, when standing, does not turn upwards further than the point at which the eye can see the center of the sky, nor sideways further than where the chin touches the shoulder, and at the waist we hardly ever turn so far as we get the shoulder directly above the navel. The movements of the legs and arms are freer provided they do not interfere with the other respectable parts of the body. But in these movements, I have observed from nature that the hands are very rarely raised above the head, or the elbow above the shoulders, or the foot lifted higher than the knee, and that one foot is usually no further from the other than the length of a foot. I have also seen that, if we stretch our hands upwards as far as possible, all the other parts of that side follow that movement right down to the foot, so that with the movement of that arm, even the heel of the foot is lifted from the ground. There are many things of this kind which the diligent artist will notice, and perhaps those I have mentioned so far are so obvious as to seem superfluous. But I did not leave them out because I have known many make serious mistakes in this respect. They represent movements that are too violent and make visible simultaneously in one and the same figure both chest and buttocks, which is physically impossible and indecent to look at. But because they hear that these figures are most alive that throw their limbs about a great deal, they cast aside all dignity in painting and copy the movements of actors. Of consequence, their works are not only devoid of beauty and grace, but are expressions of an extravagant artistic temperament. A painting should have graceful and pleasing movements that are suited to the subject of the action. 
and young maidens' movements and deportments should be pleasing and adorned with a delightful simplicity, more indicative of gentleness and repose than of agitation. Although Homer, whom Zeusius followed, liked a robust appearance also in women. The movement of a youth should be lighter and agreeable, with some hint of strength of mind and body. In a man, the movement should be more powerful, and his attitudes marked by a vigorous athletic quality. In old men, all the movements should be slow and their postures weary, so that they not only hold themselves up on their two feet, but also cling to something with their hands. Finally, each person's bodily movements in keeping with dignity should be related to the emotions you wish to express. And the greatest emotions must be expressed by the most powerful physical indications. This rule concerning movements is common to all living creatures. It is not suitable for a plow ox to have the same movements as Alexander's noble horse, Bucephalus. But we might appropriately paint the famous daughter of Anacus, who was turned into a cow, running with high head, feet in the air, and twisted tail. These brief comments must suffice regarding the movement of living creatures. Now I must speak of the way in which inanimate things move, since I believe all the movements I mentioned are necessary in painting also in relation to them. The movements of hair and manes and branches and leaves and clothing are very pleasing when represented in painting. I should like all the seven movements I spoke of to appear in hair. Let it twist around as if to tie itself in a knot and wave upwards in the air like flames. Let it weave beneath other hair and sometimes lift on one side and another. The bends and curves of branches should be partly arched upwards, partly directed downwards. Some should stick out towards you others recede, and some should be twisted like ropes. Similarly, in the folds of garments, care should be taken that, just as the branches of a tree emanate in all directions from the trunk, so folds should issue from a fold like branches. In these two, all the movements should be done in such a way that in no garment is there any part in which similar movements are not to be found. But, as I frequently advise, let all the movements be restrained and gentle, and represent grace rather than remarkable effort. Since by nature clothes are heavy and do not make curves at all, as they tend always to fall straight down to the ground, it will be a good idea when we wish clothing to have movement to have it in the corner of the picture the face of the west or south wind blowing between the clouds and moving all the clothing before it. The pleasing result will be that those sides of the bodies the wind strikes will appear under the covering of the clothes, almost as if they were naked, since the clothes are made to adhere to the body by the force of the wind. On the other sides, the clothing blowing out by the wind will wave appropriately up in the air. But in this motion caused by the wind, one should be careful that movements of clothing do not take place against the wind, and that they are neither too irregular nor excessive in their extent. So, all we have said about the movements of inanimate and animate things should be rigorously observed by the painter. He should also diligently follow all we have said about the composition of surfaces, members, and bodies. We have dealt with two parts of painting, circumscription and composition. It remains for us to speak of the reception of light. In the rudiments, we said enough to show what power lights have to modify colors. We explained that, while the genera of colors remain the same, they become lighter or darker according to the incidence of lights and shades. That light and black are the colors with which we express lights and shades in painting, and that all the other colors are, as it were, matter to which variations of light and shade can be applied. Therefore, 
Leaving other considerations aside, we must explain how the painter should use white and black. Some people express astonishment that the ancient painters Polygonus and Timantheus used only four colors, while Aglophone took pleasure in one alone, as if it were a mean thing for those fine painters to have chosen to use so few from among the large number of colors they thought existed, and as if these people believed it the duty of an excellent artist to employ the entire range of colors. Indeed, I agree that a wide range and variety of colors contribute greatly to the beauty and attraction of a painting, but I would prefer learned painters to believe that the greatest art and industry are concerned with the disposition of white and black, and that all skill and care should be used in correctly placing these two. Just as the incidence of light and shade makes it apparent where surfaces become convex or concave, or how much any part slopes and turns this way or that, so the combination of white and black achieves what the Athenian painter Nicias was praised for, and that and what the artist must above all desire, that the things he paints should appear in maximum relief. They say that Zeusus, the most eminent ancient painter, was like a prince among the rest in understanding this principle of light and shade. Such praise was not given to others at all. I will consider of little or no virtue the painter who did not properly understand the effect every kind of light and shade has on all surfaces. In painting, I would praise, and learned and unlearned alike would agree with me, those faces which seem to stand out from the pictures as if they were sculptured, and I would condemn those in which no artistry is evident other than perhaps in the drawing. I would like a composition to be well drawn and excellently colored. Therefore, to avoid condemnation and earn praise, painters should first of all study carefully the lights and shades and observe that the color is more pronounced and brilliant on the surface on which the rays of light strike, and the same color turns more dim where the force of the light gradually grows less. It should also be observed how shadows always correspond on the side away from the light, so that in no body is a surface illuminated without your finding surfaces on its other side covered in shade. But as regards the representation of light with white and shadow with black, I advise you to devote particular study to those surfaces that are clothed in light or shade. You can very well learn from nature and from objects themselves. When you have thoroughly understood them, you may change the color with a little white applied as sparingly as possible in the appropriate place within the outlines of the surface, and likewise add some black in the place opposite to it. With such balancing, as one might say of black and white, a surface rising in relief becomes still more evident. Go on making similar sparing additions until you feel you have arrived at what is required. A mirror will be an excellent guide to knowing this. I do not know how it is that paintings that are without fault look beautiful in a mirror, and it is remarkable how every defect in a picture appears more unsightly in a mirror. So, the things that are taken from nature should be amended with the advice of the mirror. Let me relate here some things I have learned from nature. I observe that plain surfaces keep a uniform color over their whole extent, while the colors of spherical or concave surfaces vary, and here it is lighter, there darker, and elsewhere a kind of in-between color. This variation of color in other than plain surfaces presents some difficulty to not very clever painters. But if, as I explained, the painter has drawn the outlines of the surfaces correctly and determined the border of the illuminated portions, the method of coloring will then be easy. 
He will first begin to modify the color on the surface with white or black, as necessary, applying it like gentle dew up to the borderline. Then he will go on adding another sprinkling, as it were, on this side of the line, and after this another on this side of it, and then another on this side of this one, so that not only is the part receiving more light tinged with more distinct color, but the color also dissolves progressively like smoke into the areas next to each other. But you have to remember that no surface should be made so white that you cannot make it a great deal whiter still. Even in representing snow white clothing, you should stop well on this side of the brightest white. For the painter is no other means than white to express the brightest gleams of the most polished surfaces, and only black to represent the deepest shadows of the night. And so in painting white clothes, we must take one of the four genera of colors which is bright and clear, and likewise in painting, for instance, a black cloak, we must take the other extreme, which is not far from the deepest shadow, such as the color of the deep and darkening sea. This composition of white and black has such power that, when skillfully carried out, it can express in painting brilliant surfaces of gold and silver and glass. Consequently, those painters who use white immoderately and black carelessly should be strongly condemned. I would like white to be purchased more dearly among painters than precious stones. It would be a good thing if white and black were made from those pearls Cleopatra dissolved in vinegar, so that painters would become as mean as possible with them, for their works would be then both more agreeable and nearer the truth. It is not easy to express how sparing and careful one should be in distributing white in painting. On this point, Zeusix used to condemn painters because they had no idea what was too much. If some indulgence must be given to error, then those who use black extravagantly are less to be blamed than those who employ white somewhat intemperately. For by nature, with experience of painting, we learn as time goes by to hate work that is dark and horrid. And the more we learn, the more we attune our hand to grace and beauty. We all by nature love things that are distinct and clear. So we must the more firmly block the way in which it is easier to go wrong. We have spoken so far about the use of white and black, but we must give some account also to the kinds of colors. So now we shall speak of them, not after the manner of the architect Vitruvius, as to where excellent red ochre and the best colors are to be found, but how selected and well-compounded colors should be arranged together in painting. They say that Euphrenor, a painter of antiquity, wrote something about colors. This work does not exist now. However, whether if it was once written about by others, we have rediscovered this art of painting and restored it to light from the dead, or whether, as it were never treated before, we have brought it down from the heavens, let us go on as we intended, using our own intelligence as we have done up to now. I should like, as far as possible, all the genera and species of colors to appear in painting with a certain grace and amenity. Such grace will be present when colors are placed next to others with particular care, for if you are painting Diana, leading her band, it is appropriate for this nymph to be given green clothes, the one next to her white, and the next red, and another yellow, and the rest should be dressed successively in a variety of colors, in such a way that light colors are always next to dark ones in, of a different genera. This combining of colors will enhance the attractiveness of the painting by its variety, and its beauty by its comparisons. 
there is a kind of sympathy among colors whereby their grace and beauty is increased when they are placed side by side. If red stands between blue and green, it somehow enhances their beauty as well as its own. White lends gaiety, not only when placed between gray and yellow, but almost to any color. But dark colors acquire a certain dignity when between light colors, and similarly, light colors may be placed with good effect among dark. So the painter in his Historia will arrange this variety of colors I have spoken of. There are some who make excessive use of gold because they think it lends a certain majesty to painting. I would not praise them at all. If I wanted to paint Virgil's Dido with her quiver of gold, her hair tied up in gold, her gown fastened with a golden cloth, driving her chariot with golden reins, and everything else resplendent with gold, I would try to represent with colors rather than with gold this wealth of rays of gold that almost blinds the eye of the spectators from all angles. Besides, the fact that there is greater admiration and praise for the artist in the use of colors, it is also true that when done in gold on a flat panel, many surfaces that should have been presented as light and gleaming appear dark to the viewer, while others that should be darker probably look brighter. Other ornaments done by artificers that are added to paintings, such as sculpted columns, bases and pediments, I would not censure if they were in real silver and solid or pure gold, for a perfect and finished painting is worthy to be ornamented even with precious stones. So far we have dealt briefly with the three parts of painting. We spoke of the circumscription of smaller and larger surfaces. We spoke of the composition of surfaces, members and bodies. With regard to colors, we have explained what we considered applicable to the painter's use. We have therefore expounded the whole of painting, which we said earlier on consisted in three things, circumscription, composition, and the reception of light. Thanks for listening to this episode. Don't forget to check the actual text for notes and additional information and graphics. And remember, every day is a learning day.